sometimes the Scripture seems to lend itself, especially on Lord's Supper Day, to us considering it and considering it well before we have the Lord's Supper. I think today is one of those days. I think we're going to learn something about our Savior, which this is His Supper. I think we're going to learn something that maybe we aren't that familiar with, and it may help us to worship Him even better through the Lord's Supper. In Tukwila, we did a, a, a worship, act, excuse me, a fellowship activity that we called "Guess Who's Coming to Dinner," and uh, people could sign up. It was a great thing because you could sign up to be a guest at dinner, or you could sign up to be a host for dinner. And we would take all of those sign-ups, and then we would match people up, and they wouldn't find out who was coming or where they were going until very close to the actual uh, Sunday of the event. We told the, the host how many were coming. We didn't keep them completely in the dark. And uh, we had a lot of fun with that. On the first, I think it was the very first Sunday we did it, on Sunday night, some folks came back to church, and they said, you sent us to our relative's house. And I thought, what, you don't have, I mean, I, we did have some relatives in the church, but I didn't send them there. Well, they went out to some folks' house, and as they talked through the afternoon, they found out that they had a mutual relative. It was something like their grandfathers were brothers or, you know, some relative, uh, a couple notches up the family tree. And lo and behold, they were Steve Garouli folks where everybody is related. <laughs> So it was inevitable that they find a relative. <laughs> you just never know what you're going to find out about somebody until you talk and get a little more intimately acquainted. The book of Hebrews is helping us to become intimately acquainted with Jesus. Everybody who's a Christian knows something about Jesus. And some folks know more than others. The book of Hebrews is taking us into great depth, and in Hebrews 7, it's going to take us into some depth about a particular aspect of the work and life of Christ that we call the priesthood of Christ, or the high priesthood of Christ. And it's going to talk about an obscure little passage in the Old Testament and make it very important. Please follow as I read the first part of our passage today from Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of everything, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come out from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. 
Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, some of you are going, what in the world? You're reading that and you're going, boy, there's kind of a lot of information and it's going back and forth. And uh, we need to understand that this is a challenging passage of Scripture. If you remember in our studies of Hebrews, the author, by God's inspiration, said to the people who he was writing to, he said, We've got a lot of things to say about this Melchizedek, but you have become, what? Dull of hearing. And so he had to challenge them in their spiritual life to get them ready to hear what is by all accounts a challenging passage of Scripture, a neat passage of Scripture, not a milk passage. What we have here in the verses we just read is a picture of the priesthood of Jesus. A picture of the priesthood of Jesus. A word that you need to add to your biblical vocabulary or your theological vocabulary is the word type. T-Y-P-E. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. I want to help you understand what that means. Here's a quote from a, from a Bible teacher who I think defines this very well. In biblical study, a type refers to an Old Testament person, practice, or ceremony that has a counterpart or an antitype in the New Testament. In that sense, types are predictive. The type pictures or prefigures the antitype. The type, though it is historical, real, and of God, is nonetheless imperfect and temporary. The antitype, on the other hand, is perfect and eternal. Probably the best word in our common language for the word type might be the word picture or the word illustration. Um, when this building was built, somebody took a pencil and paper and drew some plans. And they may have even drawn a three-dimensional, we call it three-dimensional even though it's flat on the paper, a three-dimensional concept of what the building would look like. Now that's not the building it is a picture of the building. And of course, as architecture and building goes, the building may not come out exactly like the picture, but you get a real good idea of what's going to come from looking at the illustration. Melchizedek is such an illustration of Christ. There are, we are going to find out about many of these Old Testament pictures in the book of Hebrews as they find their reality in Christ. This is the first, perhaps, of those great pictures here. To get the full feel of what the author is trying to communicate to us, we need to go back to Genesis 14 and just read the incident. You will be surprised to find out what a small amount of Scripture is devoted to this Melchizedek, even though he is extremely important, as we'll find out by the end of today's Scripture passage. Genesis 14, 14. Now when Abram, this was before his name was changed to Abraham, when Abram heard that his brother Lot was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit 
as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom, that's where Lot lived and the people that had been conquered, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedarlomer and the kings who were with him. Abraham had to go fetch his brother home from the kidnappers. That's the long and the short of it. These four kings came and made war on the area where Lot lived. They took all the people captive, going to make them slaves. They took all of their valuable possessions that they could carry. And they, went, they were heading back home. When Abram heard about it, he said, that just won't do. And he went out by night and did guerrilla warfare and completely decimated these armies and brought back Lot. You know, free, that was his goal, was to free Lot. Now let's follow on, verse 18. Then, after this great victory, then Melchizedek, king of Salem. Melchizedek wasn't involved in the war at all, neither side. He was just a guy, a king. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. Now, what we understand, we understand the details of this from Hebrews, but I want you to get a picture here, folks. That's it about Melchizedek. That little episode, that's it. But when we come to Hebrews, we have the divine interpretation of this episode. Let's go back to Hebrews and read this list of descriptors about Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, Salem was the place or the city over which he was the king. It is probably an early name for part of what became Jerusalem. The word Salem means Shalom or peace. It's the word Shalom that means peace in Hebrew. He was the king of the city called Salem, priest of the Most High God. He was a king priest who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the king. That's how God viewed this battle that Abraham slaughtered these, these ungodly kings. And he's coming back from the battle. Melchizedek went out and met him and blessed him. Verse 2. To whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated. So the first thing we understand is he was the king of a place called Salem. His name is Melchizedek, which means literally God is righteous. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth. Abraham tithed. This is probably a tithe off of the spoils of war. The word here literally means he gave something off the top. They had a custom in that day when there was a war and they gathered all the booty together, they would pile it all up and the very best went to the the commander-in-chief or the general or the king or whoever it was, Abraham took that very best part, that very best 10%, and gave it to this king priest. 
verse 3. This is God's commentary on Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Now, is that humanly possible? <laughs> no. It's only possible one in, for one person who is the person Jesus, and even Jesus had a human mother. He did not have a human father. Probably the most important phrase there is the phrase, without genealogy. Do you remember when we read Genesis? Abraham goes out and fights the battle. He comes back. Here's Melchizedek. If you were to read the whole book of Genesis, would you have heard of Melchizedek before that episode? No. Will you hear about him again in the book of Genesis? No. God comments on him and says, as to what you know about him, as to how he appears, he appears without father, without mother, without genealogy. Now, if we look down in verse 6, we read this, but he whose genealogy, now that's talking about Melchizedek, if we look at all the details here, he whose genealogy is not derived from these other priests, received Christ. So clearly God is saying, God is not saying this is a superhuman, this is God in the flesh. He's trying to tell us that as he appeared, he appeared without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Boom! Here's Melchizedek. Never heard about him before? Never hear about him again. He's just there. He's the king priest having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but, here's the key, made like, not the same as, but made like the Son of God remains a priest continually. How is he made like the Son of God? He's made like the Son of God because in God's estimation, he appears suddenly with no parents, no declared birth date, no genealogical list of his ancestors, and no death is recorded of him. Now, we know that he had parents, and we know that he died. But he is recorded in Scripture in such a way to illustrate for us the person of Christ. Verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. Here we're getting to the real importance of Melchizedek as a type. Consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. That's the spoils of war. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people. And he goes on. I'm going to tell you this in a story form, if you will, or in an explanation form, and you can read it in the Scripture and go over it later on. What he says basically is this. He's talking to Jewish folks who were well acquainted with God's Old Testament legal system, his system of ritual law that involved their worship. And part of that worship required them to give 10% of all of their income to God through the priesthood. Now, a tenth of the tenth personally supported the Levitical priests, the sons of Levi, the priests. The rest of that supported other things in God's uh, nation of Israel. But all of the people of Israel were supposed to tithe to the priests. 
and they personally received a tenth of that for their support. So he says here, you know that the Levitical priests received tithes from their brethren. But he says, consider how great this Melchizedek is. He received a tithe or a 10% from Abraham. And what he goes on to say is, think about it, folks. Abraham is the first Jewish man. He is the first man that God made the promise with and said, Abraham, out of you will come a great nation. And if you know your Bible history, you would know it's his grandson who was Levi, who was the father of that tribe of Levites. And later on, about two, three hundred years later on, we find a guy named Aaron, who's the first priest in that family. And then we find his descendants, the sons of Levi. Levi is one of the twelve patriarchs, and out of him come all of these priests. But before Levi, father and grandfather back to Abraham, Abraham gave a tithe to this guy named Melchizedek. And you're, you're sitting there thinking, Dave, are you really spending all this time teaching us this? Yes, I am, because there is something critically important that's going to come from this. Look again at verse 4. Consider how great this man, Melchizedek, was. God is using this passage of Scripture especially to teach Jewish people, but there's going to be something for us here, too. He's saying, look, folks, the, the priest who were Levites, or the Levitical priesthood, they are a secondary kind of priesthood. The ultimate priest was Melchizedek. And the reason that he says that is because Abraham, our father, himself gave a tithe to Melchizedek. The whole point of Melchizedek is to show us a superior kind of priesthood to the one that came by the law of God. We are to learn a very simple truth through the story of Melchizedek and his linking as an illustration to Jesus. The priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Aaron and Levi. And the key way that God argues for that is this, by the paying of tithes to him. Okay? Now, we go on in verse 11. That's the foundation now we go on to find out why that is so significant. And believe me, it's going to come right down to today by the time we get done. The perfection of Jesus' priesthood is now going to be talked about in verses 11 through 19. Therefore, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, if that were possible, is what he's saying, for under it the people received the law, if that were possible, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Now, for this, we need to go to Psalm 110. Please go there with me. This is the only other time, the third passage, where Melchizedek is mentioned. And this is the critical time as we consider the person of Christ and the linking of these two men. Psalm 110. (coughs) 
psalmist, who we believe to be David here, King David, the king of Israel, says this, The Lord, and in your Bible that should be a capital L and then small caps O-R-D, which is an English code way to indicate to you this is the word Jehovah. It's the word for God the Father, God the Almighty in the Old Testament. Jehovah said to my Lord, David is talking, he says, the Supreme One said to my Supreme One. What did Jehovah say to this one who was above David? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jehovah shall send the rod of your strength. This is the person David's talking to and talking about. Jehovah shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of, the, of your youth. Jehovah has sworn and said, and he will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink by the brook of the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Who do you think David is talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. He said, my Lord. He said, Jehovah said to my Lord, Sit over here at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. This is repeated about Christ later on. And the key thing that we need to understand about it today is this. King David, living right in the middle of this Old Testament time of law, the time of the Levitical priesthood, during that time frame, God says, you, you Messiah, you Savior of the people of Israel, you're going to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You're going to be a priest like Melchizedek was a priest, not like Levi, not like Aaron. Now let's come back to Hebrews and try to understand even further why this is so important. Therefore, if perfection could have been possible through the Levitical priesthood, Hebrews 7, verse 11. What further need would there have been that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. And yet, it is far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
through David, God prophesied that the Savior or the Messiah of his people, the person who we call Jesus, would be a priest like Melchizedek. And according to what we just learned in the first part of this passage, Melchizedek was a better kind of priest because even Abraham honored him as a priest. Therefore, the priesthood of Jesus is of the superior kind. It is better than the kind of of the Levitical priest. And so from that, now we understand what is the impact of the priesthood of Christ. The first impact, first thing we need to understand is this. The Old Testament priests and law were impotent. And I'm not speaking with a southern accent. Not important, impotent. They were without power. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling, or literally it means to get rid of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The impotency of the Old Testament priests and the Old Testament law is really spelled out for us in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3. Now trust me, we're getting closer and closer to something you need to know. See, so far you're thinking, Dave, this is like algebra. It's real fun, but it's really not that relevant to my life. Oh yes, we're getting, we're getting closer and closer. Aren't you glad I at least know it's tough? Galatians 3, 19. What purpose then does the law, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament ritual law in particular, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed, that's a reference to Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law which could give life, then truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined everyone under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. What did the law do in the Old Testament? If, if you have never been clear about this, let me say, first of all, nobody ever got saved by keeping the law. Sometimes we have this mental image that in the Old Testament people got saved by keeping all these rules and in the New Testament we get saved by believing in God. And that is not the case. This right here tells us righteousness never came by the law. It was not possible. In Hebrews 7, this is referred to as the weakness of the law. It's also referred to as the weakness of those priests, those Levitical priests. It was weak and unprofitable. Did you notice the part in Hebrews where he talked about Jesus not being a priest according to the law of a fleshly 
commandments. What he means here is this. All of the Old Testament law was about external conformity. Do you know what external conformity is? External conformity is what you do when you get on the freeway right here and it's 70 miles an hour. One of the greatest things about living in Ferndale is 70 miles an hour on the freeway right here. You get on and you go, zoom, 70 miles an hour. And then you're thinking, you know, I'm late. So I'm going to go 75 or 80. Nobody's around. Hey, you know, and you get just, you just come over one of those little rises and you look over there and you see that little trace of white. And immediately you go, that is external conformity. Do you believe in your heart that it's wrong to speed? Not some of you. But when that priest, that servant of God, who does not bear the sword or ticket book in vain, is sitting there, you're going to conform. That's what the Old Testament law did. It was about external conformity. Now, here's the deal. If you really believed God in that Old Testament time frame, you would then obey the law because you believed. That's what a true believer was in the Old Testament time frame. But what we are learning in Hebrews, and we're going to learn more and more, is even though those people believed, and even though they eventually made it to heaven by God's grace, the keeping of the law did not take their sin away. Neither did the animal sacrifice. It only put it on hold until Jesus died on the cross. What God is saying about the person of Christ in Hebrews 7 is, Christ has not been made a priest like these Levitical priests were, just by this externally conforming law. He's a priest of a different kind. He said the law, all it did was show people what was wrong with them. Do you have any friends with the gift of criticism? I had a man in church one time, not this one, tell me that God had given him the gift of criticism. It was his job. I'm not joking and I'm not exaggerating. It was his job to keep the church on the straight and narrow. God says that's what the Old Testament law was. Every time he stepped out of line, he said, you're out of line, you're out of line, you did something wrong, that's not right. Now, you get tired of that after a while, don't you? And that's what God intended for his people. He intended for them to get tired of that. So when Jesus came along and said, hey, you know what? I can, I can give you a new heart, and you can be righteous from the inside out, that they would go, man, I've been looking for that. That's the kind of priest he was. The Old Testament law, was a, a 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 and 9 say it was a ministry of death and condemnation. Romans 5.20 says the law was added that sin might abound. Now, it doesn't mean that sin would be more. It means so that sin would be visible. You know, in our country, we have different laws from other countries. Uh, I, I read an interesting thing in the paper yesterday about a family in Iraq if you remember an incident during the war or right after the war where a young woman approached some Marines holding grenades and she was going to be a human bomb or whatever, and they killed her and, and protected themselves, her family is mad at her 
not for doing the bomb, but for leaving the house without her father's permission. And he said, if she'd have come back, I'd have killed her myself. Wow. We have different laws here than there. God says, I put these laws down so you would know what's right and what's wrong in particular so that sin would abound. Now we're getting closer to what's important. Listen to this. Does the Old Testament law help righteousness to abound? No. No. Sin. It only helps sin to abound. It shows all the sin. It does not build righteousness. Keeping the law was never a path to righteousness. Faith in God was always the path to righteousness. Now, come back with me to Hebrews 7, please. The Old Testament law, the Old Testament priests were impotent. They were without power. And so they needed to be removed. Look at verse 12. Hebrews 7, 12. For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is a change of the law. And the word change here means to put one thing in the place of another. If I took this music stand and put it here, and took this music stand and put it here, we would say, I changed the music stands. I put one in the place of the other. God says, because the priesthood changed, so did the law. Now here's where we're starting to come real close to your life, folks. The reason we do not believe and follow the Old Testament law as a pattern for our life is because our priest is not a Levitical priest. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, the perfect priest. And because the priesthood changed, so did the law. It was removed. Verse 18 talks about the annulling or getting rid of. And this word annul is translated to put away sin in Hebrews 9. You know what that means? That means that the law has been as decisively put away by God as our sin has. And Jesus has replaced the Old Testament priest with himself alone, and the law has been replaced with grace. Now turn with me to Colossians 2. Here's where we get right down to where this matters to you and me today. And if you haven't encountered this yet, you will in your Christian life. Colossians 2, 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven you all of your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. That's talking about that Old Testament law. Colossians 2, 14. The handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, having made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. So, let no one judge you in food, or drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbath, which are a shadow 
of the things to come, but the substances of Christ. Hebrews 7 says Christ brings us a better hope. If his hope is better, if his priesthood is better, why would we ever want to mix the Old Testament law with the New Testament grace? You say, Dave, I'm still not quite getting this. Let me help you. And I know when I do this that people say you're being critical. I'll run the risk. I'll show you the pages written in the books if I need to. But I'll do so for your admonition and for your preparation if it hasn't come your way yet. I have a friend who's a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church here. Do you want to know why they worship on Saturday, which is the Sabbath, by the way. Sunday is not. Sunday is the first day of the week. We worship on the first day of the week in commemoration of what? Resurrection. Why do they worship on the Sabbath? Why do they believe that if you don't worship on the Sabbath, you're messed up? You're sinning. Why? Because they have not let go of the Old Testament law completely. Now, certainly, if you were to ask them, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Absolutely. Do you believe you have to believe in him? Absolutely. No other sacrifice. are not doing animal sacrifices at Seventh-day Adventist Church. And that alone should be a clue about the change of God's timing. But this passage right here is the decisive answer. If you believe in Jesus, if you are following the high priest of your faith, who is a priest, not according to the Levitical priesthood, but according to this better Melchizedekian priesthood, why in the world are you going back to the Old Testament law? It's not going to help you. And not only do they worship on Saturday, but one of the chief areas of law that they really believe and promote is the... Now, I'm not against vegetarians. I love you, Brother Scott. That's perfectly acceptable. But it is not acceptable to say you will be more righteous if you follow the Old Testament dietary laws. Because our high priest is not a Levite. He's in the order of Melchizedek. He is the supreme high priest. Have you ever heard of a messianic congregation? They are folks who believe they are they are Bible-believing, evangelical. In other words, they believe in Jesus as their Savior. Don't get me wrong here. Everybody I'm talking about here is a brother in the Lord. I believe that most of the Seventh-day Adventists are brothers in the Lord, and I believe a change has taken place in the last 25 years to where I can say that statement. There are such a things as Messianic congregation. One of them meets at the, uh, at the, the campground over here. Okay? And there are variations in their beliefs, but basically it goes something like this. If you want to really find out what Christianity is about, you've got to follow the Old Testament Jewish feast. You know, the, 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 the Passover, the, you know, all these different feasts. You have to participate in them. A lot of them have Jewish dancing. Now, is there anything wrong with having Jewish dancing in church? I'm really going to stretch some of it here, but no, there's nothing wrong with that. 
you know, hey, hey, you know, we're all brothers, we are, you know, whatever. Great. Hey, whatever, whatever draws you closer to the Lord. But don't tell me I have to do that to be close to the Lord. You see, they're go- they've gone back for some reason I, beyond me to say, we love some of this stuff in the Old Testament, and they love it beyond just it's really cool. They love it as in you, you are not quite a full Christian unless you're following some of this in the Old Testament. They're, I think they call them rabbis, wear shawls, they wear yarmulkes, and so on. Okay. Hey, folks. The law is over. The law is over. Why is it over? Because our high priest is the superior high priest. If you're going to believe in Jesus, let all of that go. (laughs) There's another group of Christian brothers who have made a mistake with the Old Testament law. And they are what we might call on the more extreme edge of the Pentecostals or the Charismatics. And the thing that you will hear from them, I, I... I know a pastor, uh, I, I don't personally know him, but he, his church was very close to mine in the Seattle area, and he drove a, I believe a Lamborghini, which is, you know, two to $300,000, and he parked it right by the front door of their very large church because he believes that if you really follow God, he is going to make you healthy and wealthy. And you know where that promise is found? It's found in the Old Testament. And I'm sorry, Pastor Casey, but that does not belong to you. It belonged to God's people in that time. That part of the law is over. And what Hebrews 7 is saying, it's a good thing that it's over because we have a better hope. I'm not hoping to be healthy. I had a discussion a couple weeks ago with a guy about counseling. Here's a young man preparing to go for his finish his education, and the Christian man, and I just said, oh man, what a wonderful thing to take God's word and help people in their life. Oh yeah, but not everybody wants that. And you know the discussion went so far that he said, you know what? People's faith in God, that's their business. I'm just going to help them live their life you know, if they come to know the Lord, that's their business. I said, do you tell me you're satisfied to let people go to hell happy? Well, that's, that's between them and God. I said, oh man, I don't want to do that. I want to help people with their whole life. What a great privilege is ours. I'm so thankful that I don't have to kill animals here every Sunday. My high priest is the superior high priest. And you know what this commemorates? This commemorates his entrance into that priesthood. He became the high priest through offering the sacrifice. He took his blood and went to heaven and entered the Holy of Holies, and God said, I am satisfied. No more sacrifices need to be made. All of that is done. Wow. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians 3, the the people in Galatia had a problem. Musicians, would you come and get ready as I finish here? The people in Galatia had the same problem we've been talking about today. That is, mixing the law and grace together 
Now, now, don't get me wrong. God's moral law has never changed. Is it, is it wrong to murder? Yes. Is, is, you know, is it wrong? You know, so on, the Ten Commandments. God's moral will has never changed, but his ritual will have. Look at Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having then begun in the Spirit, are you going to be completed in the flesh? He makes this very obvious point. He said, how did you come to be a Christian, a born-again one? Well, it's by putting my faith in Christ. Absolutely. Now, do you think you're going to take that foundation and build on it obedience to the Old Testament law and somehow become righteous? Then think about it. The sad truth is, folks, there's people all around us. And, and, and I <laughs> would, would fail for time to talk to you about the what I would call non-Christian religion that teach people that following commandments is going to earn them a spot in heaven. No, we have a better hope, a better hope, through which we draw near to God. When we take the Lord's Supper today, if you're like me as you receive that element, you, you'll be talking to God. And you'll be saying, thank you, Jesus, for, for suffering for me as the bread commemorates and Thank you for my salvation that was purchased by, by the blood which the juice commemorates. You'll be talking right to God. And do you know why you can do that? Because our high priest has gone right into the Holy of Holies and he is there now. And because he's there, you can be there. Why would you want to go back to that Old Testament time when you had to come and say, would you please go worship God and tell him I'm sorry for my sin? And then stand back while the priest would offer a sacrifice? Why would you want to go back to that in any form, in any way? Why would you want to pick up any piece of that baggage? I don't. As we receive the Lord's Supper today, we're going to celebrate the fact that we have been liberated from that law and given the opportunity to draw near to God. We're going to sing some songs to encourage us to think about this deliverance today. And I hope you'll prepare your heart to receive the Lord's Supper as we do so.